Thank you. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm going to be reading Revelation 3, 1 through 6 today. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the sevenfold spirit of God in the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your works unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, Alex. Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you today uh, for worship now and pulled pork a little later. So... Very good things. Uh, hey, so um, uh, I, I wanted just to give a shout out and thank you also to the folks who are here early setting up. Also, to you, those of you who brought food for today, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be super great. Um, hey, and next week, so as Tyson alluded to, we've got uh, five individuals getting baptized here next week, professing their faith in Christ. So stoked for that. So uh, make every effort to be here for this. Uh, parents, uh, this, is, this is one of our days where we've got the kids in here worshiping with us, and these days are so important for our kids, for them to see this, for them to hear the testimonies, really important stuff. So anyway, uh, be praying for that this next week. We're looking forward to it. And, uh, and today, so uh, our series that we are in right now is seven qualities that Jesus looks for in a church out of the book of Revelation. And uh, it's interesting, the book of Revelation opens with these seven letters that Jesus writes through the Apostle John to these seven different churches. And as he, uh, as he writes to them, it's, it's interesting to me as we're going through this, just thinking about how uh, these are kind of seven representative churches in their area. And think about it this way, like if Jesus was writing letters to seven churches in the Los Angeles area. And imagine one of us is, one is us. One is, he's writing to churches in Torrance. He's saying, these are the things that I have for you. I think it would, it would look a lot like what Jesus is writing to these churches in the ancient world as well. Where for each of them, there's, there's a word of encouragement, right? There's like, hey, you guys are doing this great. Keep doing that. For each, there's a word of correction. Right? You guys are lagging in this. You need to give more attention to this area. Right? And then there's a, a promise, a reward of what it looks like if you're faithful. And I can imagine us receiving a letter like that too. There would be things where uh, all those areas where Jesus is like, okay, this is what I want to say to you in these. And each of the letters that Jesus writes to the churches, as you heard Alex read, each of them ends with the words, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And that is our aim in this series to listen to what Jesus is saying to these seven churches that are representative of all churches. And what are the qualities that Jesus is looking for in the church? And our prayer is that we can embody those more and more as a fellowship of believers, yes? Uh, so um, this week, uh, it's, it's the church in Sardis. And if you followed the sort of postal route, if you will, 
from the island of Patmos, where John was imprisoned, you go across to the mainland and started going to these different churches. They're all separated by about 30 miles, right? It's not all that far between each church. And they make kind of this great big horseshoe. And we kind of come to the top of the horseshoe and we're coming back down. And the, the letter carrier would come to the fortress city of Sardis. And uh, Sardis was, it was a very nice city in John's day, but it was more known for its history. Right? They were good in the present, but they were great in the past. And that becomes kind of an important part of their story also. Uh, the city was known for its riches, and it was known for its military strength. Right? You have to kind of picture this part. The city was built on top of a cliff. And so from, from really sort of from three sides, there was a, a cliff that if you wanted, if you were an invading army and you wanted to come at the city... You couldn't come to it from those sides because of the cliff. There was only one main road coming into the city, one set of gates that they had to defend, and consequently, they easily repelled armies throughout history. So safety, security, became sort of a hallmark of this city. In addition to that, they were located on a trade route, so they were a city that had a lot of money. They were known in the ancient world for comfort, for decadence, uh, for overindulgence compared to their neighbors, uh, because they could be. Life in Sardis was relatively easy, uh, at least comparatively speaking, right? Uh, wars are a tremendous economic disruption. They didn't really have to deal with that. They were able to just kind of keep amassing wealth and keep amassing wealth and get more and more comfortable as they went. Now, pause there for a second. I want you to consider something. Our environment has more to do with our spiritual life and our spiritual condition than we typically give it credit for. The cultural context in which we are living out our apprenticeship to Jesus makes a big difference in terms of how our values are formed, in terms of the particular temptations that we're going to face, in terms of the things that become idols for us, uh, many of those, of course, just have to do with the human heart. That's a constant. But the setting in which that human heart is put makes a difference. Now, think about this in relation to Sardis. Think about it maybe this way. For the church in Sardis, given their cultural context, safety, security, comfort, indulgence, what might you guess that their particular challenges would be? Think about that. And before you answer, maybe think about this as well. Think about the similarities with us in our context. Those are descriptors that could pretty well describe the church in America, too. Uh, think about our country. Think about our history, right? When you think about security, it's not that bad things don't happen here. Obviously, they do. But we've got an ocean on two sides and it has been a full 200 years since we have fought a foreign invader on U.S. soil. Safety and security is, is part of American life in a way that it isn't in most of the world. Compare us even to Western Europe, where there's, there's a lot of shared heritage, there's a lot of shared values. But they are a place that has known war in a way that we have not. It shapes a culture over time. Think, too, just in terms of comfort. Uh, of, uh, of decadence, of indulgence. Um, most of us are not rich, 
But the average middle-class person in the U.S., even the average lower middle-class person, lives in comparative wealth compared to most of the world. This is evidenced by the amount of time that we have for leisure, uh, the uh, amount of time that we have to take advantage of opportunities to indulge in entertainment, uh, in good food and good drink. This is part of American life, as evidenced by, uh, among other things, the National Institutes for Health says that seven out of ten deaths in America every year, seven out of ten deaths are what they call lifestyle-related. It's directly linked to us overindulging in food and in drink and the diseases that result from that. The rest of the world looks at us and they see a culture that is shaped by safety and security, that's shaped by comfort, that's shaped by indulgence. Is it possible that the word that Jesus is speaking to this church in Sardis is a word that maybe we need to hear as well? Consider that as we get into the text here. And, And this is it. This is the quality that Jesus calls the church in Sardis to. The quality that they are called to is authenticity. Authenticity. And uh, we're defining this here uh, as an inner life matching your outer life. Right? And I I say that because I, I know we think about what it is to be authentic in a lot of different ways. If I speak my mind to you, then maybe I'm being authentic. Right? Or I'm being true to myself. Maybe I'm being authentic. The, the way that this, this concept is more commonly used in scripture is that what I see on the outside of you matches what is going on on the inside. This is the quality that Jesus calls the church in Sardis to. And I would suggest he's calling us to as well. Uh, here's the key line. He says, you have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. Your reputation is that you are a church that is alive. But Jesus looks at that and he says, I know that's what everyone else sees, but I see something different. You're actually dead. To those from the outside looking in, it looks like there's something vibrant happening. It looks like there is life. But he says, no, what people see on the outside does not match what is happening on the inside. It's like you've, you've already died, but you don't quite know it yet. Right? This is a great concept for October, for spooky season. Yes, these are zombie Christians. These are vampire Christians. We are the undead Christians. You look okay on the outside. Maybe not if you're a zombie. But the inside is, uh, is a bit messier than what the reality is. So Sardis, Sardis might be the first example of what one of the biggest dangers is to Christians in the U.S., and that's what's commonly known as nominal faith. Do you know that term? Nominal faith. It means in name only, where maybe you profess a relationship with Christ, but it kind of may or may not be there. There is something happening that is outward that maybe others see, maybe you are proclaiming, but the inward reality is something different. And this particular, this particular dilemma of nominal faith, this thrives in an environment of comfort, right? It's, that's really almost the only place that it can grow, right? You, you go up the road to Smyrna. We looked at a few weeks ago. This was not a problem there where there was rampant persecution. What incentive is there to be a Christian in name only, 
right? It just makes no sense. If you're a Christian today who lives in Iran, or you're a Christian living in Palestine at this moment, there's no incentive to be a Christian in name only. Uh, increasingly, for our kids, if you have teens, it is, there is less and less incentive to be a Christian in name only. Ours might be the last American generation for which this is a temptation in the way that it has been throughout most of our history. But this is what we're looking at at Sardis. And the call that Jesus gives is authenticity. What you are showing on the outside, make sure that that is backed up by the life that is happening on the inside. So Jesus, he looks at Sardis, sees this thin veneer of faith, and says it's not the real thing. And how does this happen? Uh, How does a church's faith become so thin as to have Jesus say, your faith is actually dead? And just as important for us, how can we prevent that? How can we live in such a way in our lives with Jesus that what results is a faith that is authentic, that starts on the inside and bubbles out to an outside that looks like what God is doing in us? Well, that's the question we're bringing to the text. Let's pray, and we'll look at the scripture together. Father God, we confess that we are a people that is prone to idol worship. And God, the particular idols that come with being a Christian in this time, in this place, we pray that you would give us a great sensitivity to that. Lord, would you and your grace give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you are saying to the churches. May we be those who live out a faith that is genuinely inspired by the Holy Spirit living in us. And God, may the outside match an inside that's truly beautiful. We need you for this work. God, be doing it even today as we worship you and coming to the scriptures and your table, as we sing, as we pray. God, we pray for your good work in us, and we trust you for that. In Christ's name, amen. So for each church, as you're probably familiar by now, each letter to each church begins with Jesus giving a picture of who he is. And the remedy he prescribes for each church flows from that picture. This is verse 1. Chapter 3, it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Now pause there. It's it's an odd image, yes? Uh, The symbolism of these two images, the sevenfold spirit, the seven stars, were actually explained in Revelation chapter 1. These are symbols that Jesus attaches a meaning to. The sevenfold spirit you might remember, is the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, God himself who comes and indwells us when we put our faith in Jesus. This is the very presence of God. The sevenfold Spirit lives in us and empowers us as we follow after Christ. Now, why is he here called the sevenfold Spirit? Uh, There's likely two reasons for this. Uh, In Bible speak, the number seven is the number of completion. So to say that this is the sevenfold spirit is to say, in essence, to these believers, you are getting all of the spirit of God. There is nothing left on the table here. You are getting all of who God is. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you are receiving the Holy Spirit in all his fullness. Uh, And then second, uh, there's letters going to seven churches. And it's probably indicative of that, too, that the Spirit is present 
in each of these churches. To frame this another way, what we need to live a faith that is authentic, to what we need to live out what Jesus is calling the churches to, is already present. That's the sevenfold spirit. The seven stars, uh, Jesus defines this in chapter one as well. Uh, these stand for the, the angels of the churches, the messengers, be they divine or human, that are superintending these congregations. And Jesus says, I hold these things in my hands. I'm holding the sevenfold spirit. I'm holding the seven stars. They're right here as you need them, as you call on me for these. So hold on to that picture, because it kind of comes up later as we get a little bit further into the text. Reading on. It says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. All right, so how did this church, how did it come to a place where it looks alive on the outside, but it's actually dead on the inside? There's no doubt a number of ways that this can happen. But for the church in Sardis, there's two factors that Jesus mentions, and we want to look at those. The first of those is apathy. It says here, Jesus says, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I found your deeds unfinished. This is interesting because it's the deeds of this church. This is the very thing that gives them the reputation of being alive. This is what causes other churches to look at them and go, oh, that's a great church. Jesus looks at the same deeds and he he says, no, I'm seeing something different. I saw you start on this particular path, but you're no longer on it. Your deeds are unfinished as I see them. Consequently, this great reputation that they have is a mirage. I wonder sometimes when other churches uh, around the world, when they look at the church in America, right? And, and they all sort of see it. It's on television. But I, I wonder if they look and they go, wow, that's what it's supposed to be like. That's a church that's alive, whatever they're seeing on their screens. But if you spent any time in any, any churches overseas, I don't know about you, but my experience very often is coming out of those settings going, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is what it looks like to be empowered with the Spirit of God. The reputation, the outside, at times it can just be a veneer. Disguising some deep unhealth. Is it possible that's the case with the church in America? I imagine so. Uh, Apathy is part of this. And I imagine these, these believers in Sardis, I, I imagine them starting well, right? They worship, they serve the poor, they witness to their faith, they gave, but then they stopped. Those things were unfinished. And we're not told why. I wish we were. Jesus doesn't say why. The church in Sardis would know why, but, but we're not told that, right? Maybe it's the case that they got sort of cocky. 
right? Maybe their reputation went to their heads. They started to believe their own press, and they just started to coast as a result of that. Uh, I can relate to that. I feel that temptation in myself to coast and just kind of rely on who I was or who we were or whatever yesterday. Sometimes it's easier. Uh, Maybe the church in Sardis was kind of living off of their past successes. Maybe they're the equivalent of that, uh, that star high school athlete who's now in their 40s, but they're still kind of calling back to the, you know, back in the day when they had the feathered mullet and the Trans Am, and, you know, they're, they're living in the glory days still. Maybe, uh, maybe it was a bit of that. That was a feature of Sardis, right? They were a storied city in the past, and now they're okay. But maybe that led to their apathy also. Uh, maybe... Maybe it's the luxury that there's a, was their undoing, right? This, this living a life of comfort and ease, let them get to a place that's apathetic. I'd put some money on that one. I think that's an easy thing to happen. Uh, maybe think about it this way. Anybody ever go water skiing? I only have a few times. I'm really quite terrible at it. But when, when you water ski, right, the, the magic of water skiing is that you are actually standing, and there's forward motion involved too, but you're actually standing on water, which we can't do. And the magic that makes it happen is there is a boat that is powering this. And the thing connecting you to the boat is the rope. And as long as you are holding into the rope, uh, as long as that rope is in your hands, then you are actually on top of the water. Right? But think about this. There's, There's this brief moment when you let go of that rope for another, I don't know, 25, 50, maybe 100 feet, depending on how fast you're going, you're still skimming across the top of the water. And then eventually you sink. That's kind of what, uh, I think, a good picture of what Jesus is talking about here in Sardis. They don't know yet that they're dead. They don't realize yet that they are sinking. They are still skimming across the water. But they've let go of the rope. They've become untethered from the life of Jesus. And now they're just skimming, and and they don't even know yet that they've begun to sink. That's where they're at. Apathy is part of how we get there. Right? We let go of the rope. Like, we're good. Look at us. We're terrific. And they let go of the rope. And it makes me think of um, one of the parables that Jesus told. It's the parable of the soils, and maybe you're, you're familiar with it, but it's the this, this story about how different people receive the word of God differently, right? And there's, there's people who are, are like seeds that fall on the road. And the seeds fall on the road, they never penetrate the soil. There's no chance for fruit coming from those whatsoever, right? That's one group. The next group are people where the seed falls on rocky soil. And that's like people who receive God's word and they're really excited about it and it sprouts up right away, but they're too shallow to be able to endure anything difficult. And so when persecution comes, they fall away. But, but then there's this. And, and this is the one that I'm like, ooh, okay, this so feels like life in America. Uh, and kind of this, this whole idea of apathy. But this is, this is the, the seeds that fall among thorns. 
And in these, the, the word of God, it takes root and it grows up quite nicely. It finds some good depth and, and there's stuff happening there. The problem, though, is what grows up alongside of the seeds. Weeds grow up alongside of the seeds. Thorns grow up alongside of the seeds. And this is what happens. This is Mark 4. It says, other people, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. Hear this. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. You hear that? The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. Does that sound like us or what? Dare I say that most believers in America live in such a way where we fill our lives with all of those other things and maybe try to sprinkle a little bit of God in around the edges. That is a recipe for faith that is dying. That is a recipe for apathy. Jesus looks at the church in Sardis. I believe he looks at the church in America, not with anger, but with love, and says, I don't want you to live that way. I want something better for you. Second, and we've seen this in the previous weeks, but the second factor that was happening in Sardis that led to their condition was moral compromise. Verse 4, he says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Uh, the church in Sardis, uh, like others we've seen in previous weeks, one of their challenges was that they became lax in their obedience to Jesus. The church starts strong, but then over time becomes more and more tolerant of sinful behavior, right? Not of sinful people. The more tolerant we become of sinful people, that's a sign of growth. But more tolerant of sinful behavior. Uh, This also, like apathy, this can happen to anyone in any setting, but this is another, uh, another challenge that is especially common in places where a Christian life can be lived with relative comfort, with relative ease. And we've, we've talked about this one a lot already, so I just want to touch on it really briefly. But just to, to add this to maybe what we've said in previous weeks, uh, one of the observations that, that I have with our generation, uh, we seem to be obsessed with ranking sins, with creating sort of a hierarchy where we say, okay, that one's really bad, right? We're not going to tolerate that because that's terrible. But this over here, eh, well, you know, we know it's wrong, but yeah, everybody does it. And you know, we're, we're not going to treat that one in the same way. Uh, so uh, this is the, the key in it. Uh, the arbiter of what we decide is a really serious sin and what we decide is not, more and more, I think, is our, our own level of personal offense. If we find it horrible, then it's horrible. If we find it kind of meh, then it's meh. And in that, we become the judge. So, you know, you take racism. We look at that and go, that is abhorrent. We're not going to tolerate that. And good, we shouldn't. But 
folks who are unmarried and sleeping together. Well, who doesn't do that these days? And we, we don't have the same level of concern. We're much more prone to tolerating that. Or take another one. Somebody in a position of power uses that power to take advantage of somebody else. And we're outraged by that. And thank God, because for a long time we weren't outraged by that when we should have been. But at the same time, you take something like greed. And if maybe I spend liberally on myself and I'm indulging in all the pleasures that life here uh, allows me to have, but my giving is sort of a pittance, a tip that I give to God, we probably don't even think of that as sin, let alone think about, am I going to tolerate it or not? Right? And, and I, I would suggest, and we could, we could do examples of this all day, right? Of the things that are really horrible and offensive to us and the things that are not. But here's the key. I think more and more, the thing that determines whether we think a sin is a big deal or not is our own level of personal offense. And friends, that is exactly backwards. A sin is not what offends you and I personally. A sin is what offends God. He is the judge, not us. He is the arbiter of what is right and wrong. He is the one who gets to determine this. And when we put ourselves in a place where our own level of offense becomes the determiner of whether something is serious or not, we are taking the place of God. We are putting on the judge's robe. We are assuming his authority And we are making ourselves the standard rather than God and his word. This is a sure path to ever-increasing levels of immorality. And it's, uh, it's a sure path, if we continue down that, of having a faith that more and more just becomes a veneer. Something that we keep up for others to see, but internally, we're dying. Jesus sees this, and he wants to save us from being those who profess his name but have a faith that is actually dead. Uh, when, I, when I first started reading this passage, um, you know, a couple of months back when we started outlining the series, my mind immediately went to, like, uh, if you've ever been to Europe, you've got all these beautiful cathedrals that are totally empty. Right? You've got way more tourists coming through on a, on a given Wednesday than you have worshipers there on a Sunday. And, and I was like, oh, okay, that's an example of a dead church. Actually, Sardis is something different. This is a church that looks super vibrant, right? You wouldn't look at it and say that church is dead. Uh, it, from the outside, they look just fine. But think about, think about those churches in a place like Europe. All of those churches, at some point... We're in this place. They passed through this phase that Jesus describes here, where they were dead and they didn't know it yet. On the outside, it still looked okay, but they had let go of the rope. They had already started to sink. Friends, what about you? What about you and I as a church? Are we leaning into an authentic faith with Jesus, cultivating a robust life with Jesus that leads out to the outer life? Or are there ways in our lives where we've begun to rely just on the outer, on having the appearance of robust spirituality, when in reality, that's no longer happening? Now, reading on. So as we, we keep going in the text, 
as God likes to do, there's a word of grace that comes in. Because though the church has been declared dead, apparently they're not totally dead, because there is a remedy. There's something the church can still do to come back. Think here to that all-important spiritual movie, The Princess Bride, right? (laughs) Miracle Max says, no, no, he's only mostly dead. And being mostly dead means you're slightly alive. There's there's still a chance in this. So uh, grace, grace means that the boat comes around again. And there is a chance for you to grab that rope. So how do we keep a faith that is authentic, both inside and out in our commitment to Jesus? So uh, the remedy here, the, the remedy is curious. Jesus doesn't tell them, go finish the things that are unfinished. He doesn't tell them, go and wash your clothes that have been soiled. Now that that would be more outer, right? Instead, he points them inward. He points them inward. Three commands that he gives. The first is he tells them to get really honest. Verse 2. Verse 2, he says, Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. And then he, he adds a couple verses later, If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come. So wake up, he says. Get super honest. Take a fearless moral inventory to borrow language from our friends in AA and ask the question, where am I? Is the faith that I am showing others matched by what is happening on the inside? What is going on with me? Or, by contrast, have I started to fake it and portray something that isn't actually what God is doing in me. And the warning here sounds super ominous, right? Jesus says, I will come like a thief if you don't wake up. Uh, This is a reference that church would have gotten really, really well. I mentioned before they're a fortress city. They've got this cliff behind them and just the one gate coming in, right? So um, the, the city, over time, they were easily able to repel foreign armies. That wasn't a problem for them. But there was twice in their history where they were conquered by foreign armies Both times it happened the same way. One was in 549 BC and then again in 195 BC and the strategy was the same. The foreign army came, they hid, and they sent around a small band of commandos who went around the backside of the city, climbed up the cliffs, snuck past sleeping guards, and went and unlocked the city gates for their hidden army to come and rush the city. Not once, but twice. That's got to hurt a little bit if, you know, if you're the city of Sardis. It's like, ah, fool me once. But um, uh, they, this is a painful image for them, right? Wake up, he says. Don't be as a church what your city was, sleeping when there is an enemy waiting at the gates. Wake up, Jesus says. Uh, friends, this is a hard word, but it's a necessary one, and it's, it's repeated in Scripture maybe more often than you might think. Uh, but a couple of representative examples. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you are really in faith. Right? Can you imagine that? If the Apostle Paul walked in here, and that was his message to us, was, hey, you think you're a Christian, but you might not be. Examine yourself to see if you are really in the faith. Right? Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 7. 
He says, not everyone who calls out Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father. Again, can you imagine Jesus walking in here and saying, you need to check yourselves and see if you really do have an authentic faith in me. Just because you say you do doesn't necessarily mean that you do. Get really honest, Jesus says. And here in this passage, right? He says, hey man, make sure your name is in that book that you are in the register. Uh, Because there is an authenticity that is needed for that. And friends, do that today. Make this part of your worship today. Asking God, getting really honest before him, where am I with you? Is my faith on a trajectory to life? Or have I already started to die and I don't actually know it? Get honest. Number two. Jesus tells the church, strengthen whatever faith you have. Right? Verse 2, he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So back in the day, uh, for a hot minute, I was a Boy Scout. This isn't surprising at all. I'm probably like the stereotypical picture of a Boy Scout, I suppose. Um, But uh, I didn't learn a whole lot. we had a, a scoutmaster who the Vietnam War was really hard on him, and most of our scouting was like waiting until he drunk himself to sleep in his tent, and then we would sneak out and go and raid other camps. It was, uh, it was a really productive time in my life. <laughs> but the one thing that I remember learning in Boy Scouts was how to make a fire. And one of the things in that is, is if the fire was going out, if you could poke around in the coals, and if there was still an ember, if you could see just even the smallest amount of red in that pile of ash, then there was hope you could bring that fire back, right? You could expose the ember, and you blow on it, and not too hard. You don't want to put it out, but just enough to get it to light up a little bit, and then if you've got some pine needles there that are dry enough, you can maybe get a little something going, and then maybe add a few twigs, and you can bring the fire back. You can strengthen what remains in the midst of that dying fire and it can become a roaring fire in very little time if you strengthen what remains. And Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis there is something there that you can work with. There's still enough ember going on there that death is not inevitable. So strengthen what remains. Friends, maybe the question for you and I out of this is what am I doing to strengthen my faith? What am I doing to grow in my relationship with Jesus, to fan the flames of whatever ember is there? You might have a pretty good fire going already, or it could be down to the last you know, a bit of red in that pile of ash. But what am I doing to grow? I think it's really easy for us in a context of safety, security, comfort, indulgence, to be really haphazard in the way that we answer this question. And I would challenge you this morning just to be very intentional, to really ask the question, what do I need to do to grow? What is my next faithful step? 
and being somebody who's continuing to grow forward and being somebody who's still holding on to that rope and not just coasting through the water. Uh, maybe for you it's joining a small group. Maybe it's getting into a setting where you can let iron sharpen iron and become more robust in your faith. Uh, maybe it's, it's setting a regular time for prayer and meditation on the scripture instead of just sort of, you know, shoehorning that in in a place where you feel like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll get it here and there and maybe that'll be enough. Uh, maybe it's a commitment to Sundays, to being present with other believers to receive the word and the sacraments and let Jesus nurture your faith in that way. Maybe it's, it's finding a place to serve, you know, which is not just about what you're doing for others. It's all about what God is doing in us when we are serving others. Right? But what is your next step? What is the thing that you can do to strengthen whatever faith you have? And that's directly related to the third command as well. Number three is this. It's trust the spirit and the word. And this is maybe my favorite verse in this whole passage. Jesus takes them back to the source. He says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Now, when we saw the church in Ephesus, they were told something a little bit different. They were told to remember what they did at first. This is a different message. Remember what you have received and heard. And that phrasing is actually really common in the New Testament also, and it refers to one of two things. That phrasing, uh, uh, what you received and what you've heard, uh, has to do first with the message. Uh, And you have these statements in the scriptures, things like, hold to the trustworthy message, or this is what I've passed on to you, what I receive, pass on to others. And it refers to, uh, to the gospel, to the teachings of Jesus. It says, hold on to that. Uh, and then also, uh, what you've received refers frequently to the Holy Spirit, right? Think of statements like Jesus saying, wait here until you have received the gift that my Father has promised, right? So word and spirit. This is what we have received. This is what we have heard. Jesus says, remember that. Remember that. Hold on to it and repent. And here we are again with that sevenfold spirit. Remember, Jesus presents himself to the church in Sardis as the one who holds the spirit and the one who holds the churches. He's saying, in essence, you have everything that you need. You have the word of God. You have the fullness of my Holy Spirit. If you're waiting for something else, if you're waiting for some other circumstance, if you're waiting for conditions to change, Jesus says, no, you've got everything that you need right now. Remember that and hold it. Hold fast and repent. If there's a place where you discover I'm out of line with God's word and God's spirit, well, there's an easy remedy to that. It's called the U-turn. We repent. And God in his grace is always ready to bring the boat back around. For that rope to come back around that skier who's bobbing in the water and take that rope and once again lean into God's word and his spirit. Friends, he is sufficient. There's nothing more that we need. 
Hold on to that rope and let God pull us back towards fullness of life in him. Let's pray.